everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I just got off a plane a couple of hours ago, and boy is my brain tired, which is why I couldn't think of anything to really talk about in this segment. I did my normal thing where I just sit there and mutter to myself, bears, bears, something about bears, but nothing came. Then I remembered I, uh, I have that notebook that I found a while ago that has uh, some kind of an ABC book that I started that I have no recollection of. So let's take a look at that. Let's see. B. Butterflies. Here's a list of butterflies that sound like they might be types of mustaches. The Great Archduke. The Colorado Hairstreak. The White Southern Admiral. The Common Mormon. The Black Satyr. The Monarch. The Grizzled Skipper. The Cuban Crescent. European Peacock. The Viceroy. The Tawny Emperor. The California Patch. The Southern Dogface and the brown elfin. So there you have it. Incidentally, a few weeks ago, I like to think that my Colorado hair streak went to a full great archduke. So, not bad me. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by John C. The Argo sailed twixt Scylla and Charybdis. Strange creatures were they, just like this synopsis. Thanks, John. Little classical flair there. Defenders, number 40, October 1976. Love, Anarchy, and, oh yes, The Assassin. Written by Steve Gerber, drawn by Sal Buscema, inked by Klaus Janssen, colored by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup, Doctor Strange, The Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk. The Red Guardian, Luke Cage, and Jack Norris, I guess. Previously in the Defenders. A titular non-team ran afoul of a squadron of strangely skulled supervillains named the Headmen. These non-normally noggined no-good nicks kidnapped billionaire duel bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, scooped out his brain, and slopped it into a punch bowl filled with psychoactive chemicals. Stephen Strange, Valkyrie, and the Hulk enlisted the aid of Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body the sorceress and created persona of Valkyrie currently inhabited, to help them burgle back the bowl-bound brain. During the course of their quest to recover the contents of the compatriots' cleaned-out cranium, the costumed crime fighters were captured. The headmen performed some unspecified brain surgery on Stephen Strange, Valkyrie, and the Hulk. After awakening from their anesthesia-induced slumber, the defenders escaped, swiping Kyle's stolen cerebellum as they did so. They headed back to Stephen Strange's sanctum, but on the way back, they bumped into their old enemy Nebulon, the celestial man from beyond the stars. Nebulon, a glamrock interstellar geologist who in previous encounters with our protagonist had attempted to flood the Earth and sell the planet to a race of aquatic aliens, claimed to have turned over a new leaf. Teaming up with a race of allegedly altruistic extraterrestrials named the Ludbardites, the Celestial Flimflam Men adopted the guise of a nebbishy human and started a clown-themed self-help cult. Because of course he did! Despite the interference of this Bowie-esque baddie and his Bozo Brigade, the Defenders eventually managed to get Kyle's body and brain in the same general vicinity. Steve called in some favors to arrange for a work visa for the world's preeminent neurosurgeon, Dr. Tanya Belinsky, to visit from the Soviet Union and help complete the process of rebrainifying the affluent avian aficionado. Unbeknownst to Steve, Dr. Belinsky had more in common with her crime-fighting colleague than mere medical degree. For in her downtime from brain doctoring, Tanya too battled the forces of evil while wearing outlandish attire, as the unsanctioned-by-the-state swashbuckling Soviet superhero, the Red Guardian. Well, doctors Strange and Belinsky attempted to medically mash Kyle's mind back into his melon, the Hulk got pissed and leapt off to guest star in some other comic books. Valkyrie took off in search of her oft-enraged Emerald Amigo, but instead ran into one of the headmen, a C-minus sorcerer named Chandu the Mystic. The mediocre mage was unhappily sporting a new body that his non-traditionally torso-topped teammates had built for him. Chandu now had bat wings, a unicorn horn, chicken legs, a snake's tongue, and six eels instead of arms. Irrationally blaming the defenders for his fanciful physique, the chimeric conjurer attacked Val on sight. 
The two tussled and the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger emerged triumphant after grabbing Chandu by the unicorn horn and kneeing him in the head repeatedly. Hooray! Unfortunately, the Aesir Amazon's victory was short-lived. During the course of their conflict, the combatants caused considerable collateral damage to a fancy restaurant, and for the unforgivable crime of inconveniencing wealthy lunchgoers, Valkyrie was thrown in prison. Oh no! The Norse warrior's brief incarceration was far from uneventful. After being bullied by a mean lady and punching the shit out of a predatory warden, hooray, a swashbuckling superheroine found herself in the midst of a full-blown prison riot. Meanwhile, back in the Sanctum Sanctimonious, a frantic Jack Norris harangued the defenders into searching for the woman he insisted, despite numerous rebukes, on referring to as his wife. Eventually capitulating to Jack's connubially confused clamoring, Nighthawk, who was now fully recovered from his successful brain surgery, led the team in a search for Valkyrie. Doctor Strange had been suffering from irregular bouts of incantational impotence and had locked himself in his room, but fortunately, the gang had recently run into Luke Cage, hero for hire, and had hired him to join them in their heroing. Hooray! Our heroes hit the streets and soon learned that their missing chum was in the slammer. Kyle was about to bribe the police commissioner into releasing his penned-up pal, but was informed of an ongoing riot, which prevented the pending payoff. Aided by the magical ministrations of Clea, Doctor Strange's disciple-slash-girlfriend, a perfectly normal and not-at-all-creepy combination relationship, Luke, Kyle, and the Red Guardian launched into a daring scheme to break into the locked-down lockup to liberate the Huskow-housed heroine. But, after busting through the penitentiary walls, the defenders found that Valkyrie had not only freed herself, but also managed to quell the riot by beating up the mean lady who had been bullying her. Gadzooks! What consequences will our protagonist suffer for their role in the jailbreak? After locking himself in his room and thinking real hard, failed to cure Steve of his sorceress performance anxiety, what drastic action will the Sorcerer Supreme take next? And what will it take to get Jack Norris to stop reciting his monotonous mantra, Where's my wife? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... None whatsoever. When you have as much money as Kyle Richmond, consequences are something that happened to other people. Thinking really hard while sitting in a tree. And $300,000. The bad news is that Valkyrie does have to go to court for the whole wrecking a fancy restaurant, instigating a prison riot, and then breaking out of jail thing. The good news is that A, her pal Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, is very wealthy and wealth-adjacent individuals tend to do pretty well in court. And two... Kyle has hired a pretty decent lawyer, a real fearless litigator, who gives prosecutors a devil of a time in court. He really dares to be good at legalness. It's daredevil. You know, Matt Murdock? Because of course it is. I mean, how many lawyers can there be in New York? Anyway, Matt lawyers the shit out of the case, and the judge basically tells Val, no more property crime, little lady. Just stick to regular old violence like a good superhero. Now take your magic sword and get out of here, you little ragamuffin. Kyle pays a hefty fine and Val goes to collect her belongings from the bailiff. The officer of the court hands over Dragonfang, but when Val asks for her uniform, she's informed that they must have lost it or thrown it out or something, and that the gruff middle-aged bailiff definitely didn't take the metal bustier and tights home with him. Why would she even think that? Okay. Kyle thanks Matt Murdock for his services and promises to make a big donation to Matt's favorite charity, because that is definitely how you pay lawyers. Everybody seems pretty stoked that Val doesn't have to serve any more jail time. Hooray! Well, everyone except for Jack Norris, who is super sullen and mopey for some reason. Hooray! The celebration continues when the heroes arrive back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Wong and Clea present Val with a Sorry we didn't notice you were in jail present. Oh shit, is that a gift-giving occasion? I usually just get one of those sorry-I-didn't-notice-you-were-in-jail Hallmark cards that they keep at the end of the aisle. Guess I've got some shopping to do. Val unwraps her present and finds that it is a new crime-fighting costume. The Asgardian-adjacent adventurer thanks Clea and Wong for their thoughtfulness and scurries up to her room to try on her new clothes. Her new outfit is basically a gold-foil bathing suit, a pair of thigh-high gold-foil boots, and a big blue cloak kind of looks like she's cosplaying as a super fancy burrito. Val is admiring herself in the mirror when Jack Norris sulks his way into the room. For the past few weeks, Jack has been making a conscious effort to not be such an asshole. 
Well, that was nice while it lasted. The matrimonially-minded meathead grabs Valkyrie by the shoulders and is like, I've tried treating you like an autonomous human being who is capable of making her own decisions and is worthy of respect off and on for nearly a month now. Why won't you give up all your ambitions, stop having adventures, and just be married to me? Why? 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 I've been slightly less of an asshole, so now I am definitely entitled to your affection. That's how this is supposed to work. You're my wife, damn it. Wow. Fuck you, Jack. Somehow, Valkyrie is not swept off her feet by Norris's combination of belligerence, yelling, and whining. I guess I must not have the same rom-coms in Asgard. Val picks up Jack by his lapels and is like, I am not your fucking wife. Now fuck off, you fucking fuck. Reluctantly, Jack fucks off. Meanwhile, Dr. Stephen Strange has gone to Central Park to sit in a tree and think real hard about why his magic powers have been all screwy lately. It's not going great. His introspection hasn't resulted in any breakthroughs, and he almost gets hit in the face with an errant baseball. Steve hops out of his tree and levitates the ball back to its startled owner. As the soul-searching sorcerer struggles to seek out the source of his recent mystical miscues, he strolls through the park and absentmindedly uses his powers to pants a blowhard politician who is giving a speech. Hooray! It is easily the coolest thing that Steve has ever done. Naturally, he is aghast. Half a continent away, the Hulk is leaping angrily through the American Southwest. Hey, I was just there. The Hulk, you should try leaping over the Phoenix uh, Botanical Gardens. They're beautiful. In the streets below him, he sees that a sleazy movie theater is screening a controversial new film called Waste that is advertising itself as a snuff film that depicts the actual death of a young woman. Gross. Apparently, the film is a fake, but a group of protesters has gathered outside to picket the film on the grounds that that is some creepy-ass exploitative shit. The Hulk really doesn't have the context to understand what the film or protest are about, but for some reason, when he sees the protesters' picket signs and the marquee advertising the film's title, he freaks the fuck out and starts smashing the crud out of the theater like, well, like the Hulk. After the building is demolished and the protesters have been sent scattering, the Hulk calms down and thinks to himself, That weird. I mean, Hulk like to smash and all, but Hulk usually have at least vague idea of why Hulk smash. Hulk not generally given to introspection, but that seem out of character. Oh well. Then the Jade Giant leaps back out of the story again. Bye the Hulk. After the Green Goliath departs, we see that one of the protesters has fled into a nearby restroom. She is startled when she hears a voice behind her. When she turns, she sees... an elf with a gun. He shoots her. So, there's that. Back at the Sanctum, Val is showing off her new outfit for her teammates when a rock with a note tied to it comes flying through the window. The note admonishes the defenders for associating with the Red Guardian on the grounds that she is a communist, which the note thinks is bad. The reproachful missive is signed, The Committee for Free Emigration. Tanya runs outside to investigate. The rest of the gang offers their assistance, but Dr. Belinsky insists that since she is the apparent inspiration of the window breaker's ire, it is her responsibility to deal with them. Reluctantly, her teammates accede to her request to handle things solo. As they head back inside, Kyle remarks, Hey, you don't suppose that note goading the Red Guardian to charge off heedlessly in pursuit of unknown assailants might be a trap, do you? Hmm. I wonder if when Steve and Tanya popped Kyle's brain back in, they made a couple of tweaks to it, because that is an uncharacteristically astute observation. The rest of the gang has little time to congratulate the billionaire bird boy on finally earning his trap recognition merit badge, because out of nowhere, Jack Norris pops up and is like, Hey everybody, pay attention to me, because I have some unprovoked rantings and exposition to say. You guys suck, and I hate you, and you're all jerks. And you guys have been so busy having adventures that you didn't even notice that that space asshole Nebulon and his guys as a clown cult leader just got appointed to the UN. And also, there's a weird new political party which just started called the Global Head Party, which is led by a lady named Ruby Thursday, and I can't remember if we're supposed to know who that is yet, but none of you are reacting to the name, so I guess not. In conclusion, I'm mad for no reason, so I thought I'd yell some information that hadn't been introduced yet but that might be useful in the next issue. You jerks! Kyle has had enough of Jack's potentially useful but abrasive tirade and says, What do I have to do to get rid of you? Jack responds, Give me $300,000. So, Kyle gives him $300,000 and Jack leaves. Huh. 
Also, hooray! Meanwhile, down the street, the Red Guardian has caught up with her window-breaking quarry. She tackles three dudes with stocking masks over their faces and starts beating them up. One of the rock-throwing reprobates pulls a gun, but Tanya kicks the weapon out of his hand. Unfortunately, the gun went off and shot one of the other thugs in the shoulder. The injured antagonist collapses in pain as his colleagues run off. An old lady sticks her head out of a nearby window and asks what all the hullabaloo is about. Tanya explains that a man has been shot and asks if she can take him up to the lady's apartment and use her phone and wait there for an ambulance. The woman agrees with apparent reluctance, but once Belinsky has carried the gunshot goon up the stairs and into the apartment, the elderly hostess pulls a gun on the crimson-clad crime fighter. It turns out that the ersatz Good Samaritan was in reality the leader of the Committee for Free Emigration. A giant muscly dude wearing a big green hood comes out and explains that the members of the committee have relatives who are trapped behind the Iron Curtain and want to use Tanya as a bargaining chip with the Soviet government. Tanya isn't crazy about that plan, so she jumps out of the window and runs away. The big guy gives chase. He's quicker than he looks, and the would-be extortionist soon catches up with his opponent. He and Tanya start to scuffle, and it is soon revealed that for some reason the masked menace has arms that are made out of metal. This surprises the spry Soviet superhero, but she ends up beating him up anyway, and leaves him in an alley for the cops to pick up. A weary Red Guardian makes her way back to the Sanctum and informs her non-teammates about her recent adventure battling the metal-armed maniac. They in turn inform her of their recent adventure, paying Jack Norris to go away. So they both did important work. Hey, if $300,000 is the going rate for storming off from the Defenders... Namor and the Hulk must be richer than a ham stuffed with cookies. Good for them. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing relatively well. Good. Yeah. Happy October. Oh, and a happy October to you as well. It is beautiful outside. The uh, sun is shining. The sky is blue. Mm -hmm. The leaves Mm -hmm. are turning colors. Those are all true things. Yep. Well noted. Thank you. Crisp, I would say, outside. Crisp. Pleasant. Pleasant and crisp. Yeah. Like a honey crisp apple. Also in season. Went and picked some recently. Made some apple butter. Nice. Yeah, pretty good. So, what'd you think of the comic? I thought this was pretty good. I thought it was a real treat. There was a lot going on. Yep. I'm glad that Val is out of jail. Sure. I'm glad that she's no longer in trouble. Uh Uh-huh. I think it's kind of funny that she had to pay damages, though, for wrecking that restaurant in the fight. Well, I mean, she didn't have to pay damages. Kyle paid damages. Kyle just bought his way out of this problem like he does all problems. He did that several times in this comic book. Yes. One of them I approve of. (laughs) Yeah. So let's get into the meat of the comic book. Jack Norris is a jerk. Yeah. Jack Norris is a real jerk. But in a way that kind of delighted me. It was funny to see him literally picked up and put in his place. A couple of times. Mm -hmm. Both by Valkyrie and by Nighthawk. Yeah. He just doesn't get it. It's like he didn't just regress to previous Jack Norris. It was like him suppressing being an asshole for like three issues, tamped it down, and then ramped it up. And exploded. And exploded all over the Defenders, his (laughs) asshole-ness. Really needed to add the ness at the end of that. Yeah. But yeah, and exactly in the way that he had been before. I think there's a couple of reasons this is happening. I think there's a couple of reasons this is happening in the book. Hmm. Unfortunately, we are coming to the end of Steve Gerber's run. Oh, no. He's got the annual, which is going to be the next issue, and then issue 41 is his last issue. And it seems as though this was maybe slightly unexpected on his part, because it feels like he put a lot of balls in the air and then is kind of pushing them into place in ways that maybe he didn't intend to before. But to kind of, okay, got to tidy this up, got to tie up all the loose ends. I think that was a big part of what was happening last issue with he may have had other plans for Val's stay in prison, but was like, okay, need to get her out of prison for the next writer. And it feels like there's a fair amount of that happening in this issue. Yeah, Jax, though, is an interesting story. He has a very abrupt change of heart, and it really amused me. That he was just like, give me $300,000 and I'll leave. And Kyle was just like, oh, yeah, okay. Dude, is that all it took this whole time? And back in uh, 1976? It's even more money. That was a lot of money. Yeah, but not to Kyle. Nope. 
I wonder if when he was overhearing that conversation, Luke Cage was just like, wait, he gets $300,000 to not do anything. How much am I making for this superheroing thing? Because I know he's on retainer with the Defenders at this point, but I wonder if maybe that makes him want to renegotiate a little bit. Yeah, that seems like a bad deal. But also, he doesn't really like Jack Norris. Yeah, I so. think it's probably worth every penny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jack full-on just goes back to bellowing, Where's my wife? And then bellowing at Val, You're my wife! Stop this superheroing nonsense and get married again with me! And it's just like, dude, fucking no. You guys have been over this. Very, very frustrating. But also kind of rewarding to see the comic book treat Jack Norris the way that I think of Jack Norris as being and to have what I think had largely been subtextual be made text in this with no, the other defenders really do not like this guy and they are sick of his shit and are not only happy to see him leave, but willing to pay a large amount of money to see him leave. I think too. Like, there was perhaps some effort several issues, a few issues ago to, as you said, have him become a better person and a more Mm -hmm. likable character and maybe, you know, contribute to the team. And then, of course, that backslid. So I also feel like, and maybe this is part of Gerber trying to clean the arc up, Mm -hmm. but on the very first page, they're like, all this stuff's happening, Val's getting released, everybody's so happy, Jack Norris isn't there in court, but that's okay because he doesn't matter. I don't think they were saying that he wasn't there in court. I think they were just saying that oh, he, he wasn't, wasn't happy. happy. And it doesn't but, matter. Yeah. Because he's care. Jack Norris. Yeah. I think that was actually trying to build pathos for the character and to say that, like, he's feeling left out and, like, the other defenders don't care about him. And I am still suspicious, actually. I have not read the annual, the next one, but the fact that he was very clear and was like, how much will it cost? $300,000. Either he had that number in his back pocket, or it is part of a larger plan, and I suspect it is part of a larger plan. Oh, like he's going to become a supervillain with the money and get back at the Defenders? Maybe. Or... Stealing his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, or maybe he has a way that he's going to try to help the Defenders in some way. I don't know. He's going to build a robot suit? Yeah, maybe. It seems like a robot suit type thing. Like he had one priced out. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... $300,000. That's what it'll take. We do see that one of the things he says he's going to do is go and volunteer with that woman in California, Ruby Thursday, who is running for president, I think? I meant to look up all the political stuff in here, and I didn't do that. Uh, There really isn't that much to look up in terms of that stuff. This is the first we are hearing of it. Mm -hmm. It is the kind of thing that there perhaps ought to have been more seeds planted of, but instead we just get one split newspaper headline that says Nebulon's Nebishulon persona is being appointed to the UN. And I don't think we've heard anything about that before. And a woman named Ruby Thursday is causing a stirrings on the political scene i'm going to check what the actual headline is yeah I looked uh, up... thursday announces candidacy i looked up the name of the political party the global head party yeah so that was a mistake but yeah. they, they don't <laughs> they, they don't exist so it's a made-up what name. do you think the global head party's platform is so there were some other things <laughs> i found yeah well see what to me would make sense is if you're starting a new political platform, you want it to be something that appeals to a lot of people. And so like global is like um, trying to bring a lot of people together. Inclusive. And for some kind of a a goal or reward or activity that everyone would enjoy. And so I think clearly with the name The Global Head Party, they're trying to say that they all get together and watch the Monkees movie Head. Oh. I mean, I can't think what else it would be. There's no way of knowing. <laughs> Nobody knows. Have you seen the Monkees movie Head? Is that the really super weird one? It is. It is. The entire reason the movie is called Head, just to be kind of circular about it the entire reason the whole movie is called head it was directed by bob rafelson and jack nicholson and they wanted to call the movie head so that if they ever made a sequel they could say from the people who gave you head oh really yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah the the global head party definitely cracked me up and i suspect we will see more from ruby thursday and the global head party i don't want to give any spoilers to you no 
Okay, please don't. I won't. I won't. Well, a Twitter with anticipation. Mm. But we do see that, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be assigned to the UN in some capacity. Where he's, like, campaigning to be voted in, right? No, I think he's going to be a UN envoy. They just I think decided. he's being appointed to that position. Thursday announced her candidacy, and that's the other split headline that Jack Norris brings up like, oh, you guys would have noticed that this was happening if you weren't off having adventures, but I guess if something can't be punched, you don't care about it. Mm-hmm. Which is a more compelling argument than his other argument, which is, where's my wife? Be my wife! You're my wife! Yeah. Read a paper. Yeah. Read a newspaper, Defenders. It's he raises a valid point. Speaking of a defender who is upset that he has to read the newspaper rather than just get all of his information through mystical osmosis the way he used to, mm-hmm. let's talk about Stephen Strange. Yeah, he is upset about that. <laughs> he is. So there was something that he said on page seven that maybe I just couldn't parse the prose. Okay. So Strange is concerned. He's still trying to meditate his way to a cure for his enchantile dysfunction. This time, outside, decides to go to the park, take his mind off things, and sit in a tree. Uh Uh-huh. Good call. Almost gets hit in the head by a baseball, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. The turn of phrase, though, was there's this thought bubble where he says, One need only ponder the undignified aspect of a sorcerer supreme with a broken nose, on account of the baseball, Mm -hmm. to grasp the urgency of my search into self. Yeah. I don't get it. What does him having a broken nose looking bad have to do with searching for himself? I think it's kind of a funny turn of phrase, and he's saying that I'd better solve this problem quickly, or else I'm going to end up with a broken nose. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Okay. I couldn't wring that bit of sense out of the way that he said that. Oh, I kind of liked the way that he said it. I thought it was funny, and it also speaks to his own self-interest. In the previous issue, he was saying, I need to solve this problem, or else Dormammu and all those other mystical assholes could come strolling into our dimension. I'm the only person standing in their way. And this time, he's more like, If I don't do this soon, I'll look silly. Yeah, some asshole kid with a baseball is gonna hit me in the nose. I like that kind of pettiness out of Steve Strange, and we see it later on, where he's wondering, I think on the very next page, Is hanging out with the other defenders bad for my brain? That's like right before he pants the senator. <laughs> right before he pants a senator who's giving his speech in the park. And he has the most mischievous, like, ain't I a little stinker look on his face when he does it. I think it's my favorite thing that he's ever done. It's really, really good. And then immediately after that, we see him being like, what am I doing? Even Kyle isn't this <laughs> juvenile. Cracked me up. And then later at the end of the comic book, we see that he wanted to confer with Jack Norris about something. I was trying to like, what would he want to talk to Jack Norris about? And all I could think was he was like, Jack, I'm not as juvenile as Kyle, am I? That would be the right person to go to. Yeah, settle I, that debate. I think that would be like the only person who would perhaps give him the answer that he wanted, which would be nobody's as bad as Kyle. Mm-hmm. So... You had trouble understanding that. I think we both had to look up a couple of words in this comic book. Indeed. Which was a little bit humbling for me. Not so much for me, but... No, good. Steve Gerber broke out the big words a couple of times. Yes, he did. One of them, I think, is legitimately just like, oh, that's an awfully big word that you don't hear very often. And the other one was just a word that you don't hear very often. On the very first page, as the judge is giving his verdict, it is described as... Damages paid, charges dismissed. The words issue forth from a stern-faced judge, along with certain animadversions. Mm-hmm. Never wreck a restaurant in a battle with a monster again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I was able to figure it out from context, and then it did end up just meaning, like, basically admonishments. Yep. But I was like, ooh, that's a new one. Yeah, that's good that you looked it up, because I had the same thought process, and I was like, yeah, that probably means admonishments, and I just kept yeah, going. Yeah, and it totally did. And the other one that I had to look up was when Val is being given her present Mm -hmm. by Clea, Mm -hmm. which is very nice of her. It is a new costume. She has to get a new costume because the guard describes when they threw out her old costume that we don't have room to keep a bunch of rags and shell casings. Which is, you know, I mean, she had boots, but it's still 
not terribly inaccurate. It, she did have a really she had a brazier that looked like shell casings. It was a I tiny, guess a tiny outfit. I think that cop took it home with him. You don't judge somebody's belongings before you return them to them. They gave her back the magic sword. I think that cop's just going to be strutting around wearing that outfit at home. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But as Clea gives her the new costume... Val's like, oh, I couldn't possibly... I I have done nothing to earn a gift. Like, you did plenty. You had a really good issue last issue. Mm -hmm. And you were just in jail for a while. Like, yeah, I think... Take, I think the, it's, take yeah. the gift. And that's pretty much what Clea tells her and says, well, it doesn't matter whether you've earned it. Consider it a handsaw. And I was like, huh? A what? And it turns out that a handsaw is, I think you said you looked this one up as well. I did. Yeah. It is a gift given for good luck or a gift given at the beginning of a new enterprise or exchange. Mm-hmm. It is archaic. It is indeed. It was also kind of confusing for me because, I mean... Clea is a magic practitioner, essentially a witch. And when a witch says, I've gotten you this Hansel, I totally expected a little fat German kid to pop up so that they, like, could, Don't eat they that. can munch him up. <laughs> Don't eat that, guys. You're the good I've guys. been fattening him with gingerbread. <laughs> but yeah, I was very relieved that that was not, in fact, what they were talking about. Me too. Speaking of creepy things, Elf with a Gun's back. Uh, I'm so sick of his shit. Me too, and this is perhaps his worst appearance so far, I think. Because he just shows up in a woman's bathroom and shoots a lady who had been protesting a snuff film. Yeah, I actually did look this one up because I do recall that, like, the... I mean, I was, like, a little kid in the 70s, so I don't remember what movies were playing, but I remember being, like, in junior high and hearing that described as a thing. Snuff films? Or yeah. this one in general? No, particular? no, in, okay. in general, I'm thinking, like, that's that can't be real. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so there was this movie that came out in 1976 called Snuff. Oh, and then there were protests in front of the the theaters, and it basically it described it. itself as a as a snuff film, although it, it wasn't. Was, yeah, really, it was a fake. It was, a, it was like a, a Blair Witch Project type thing, where it it's like, no, movie. this is found yeah. footage. But yeah, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's gross, and it's about you know this. It's gross and fucked up, and I think it's right to be protest that. That's mm-hmm. fine. And then that fucking elf shoots one of the ladies that is protesting it. Yeah, and. That and the fact that the Hulk sees the protest and he gets furious and starts smashing everything. I honestly wasn't sure. The fact that Elf with a Gun shows up and kills that lady. Are we supposed to be opposed to protests of snuff films? Yeah. Like, I I couldn't figure out, honestly, there were a couple of things in this book that were confusing to me as to what stance it was taking. Where... I was like, wait, are we supposed to be rooting against these women? No, I think that, well, the elf with a gun, you never know what his motivations or reasons are. He just shows up and he shoots people right. for some reason. So so that I just took, I was like, okay, he does that and it, it's disturbing, but I don't know what his motivation is. The Hulk's deal, I think, is just, again, to go with this whole thing of something's happened to the Defender's Noggins. Right. I had a I had a suspicion about that actually. What was your suspicion? My suspicion is that it's triggered the movie is called Waste. Mm-hmm. And we saw that the headmen when they fucked with their brains were like, We'll bring them more around to our way of thinking. I wonder if that word itself is a trigger, because like as scientists we hate waste or something like that. If there had been like putting mm. specific trigger words for mm. them or given them phrases and because the Hulk has a more simplistic mind, for him it's just recognition of the word rather than the concept that it represents. Mm-hmm. That's why he flew off the handle. Puny humans want waste. I'll show you waste. Yeah, and yeah. Goes down there and smashes everything to bits, and then is like, "What the fuck am why I doing? Why did I just smash that? Oh, that was weird. Oh boy, I'll just go jump off and go somewhere else now. <laughs> Maybe I am a behemoth. Yeah, I felt bad for the Hulk. He looked so confused after he did that. He looked which... confused, but more just like puzzled rather than like remorseful in any way oh, it no. really was just yeah. more of a like just like huh, wonder what that was all about oh well yeah, so weird. i didn't really feel bad for him and you know i don't think that he's not gonna... smashing a movie theater that is playing a purported snuff film is that bad a thing to do yeah he's not gonna lose any sleep over it i mean it did look like he wrecked some nice neons that's kind of a bummer mm-hmm. those things are hard to keep maintained yeah yeah But yeah, that's what I suspect is going on with the Hulk. I don't know what the deal is. It seems like the person who got off the lightest on this thing is Val. Like, 
she's pretty much acting like regular Val. She had that period of being kind of, I guess, sleepy for no real reason. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how that was connected with the headmen, or maybe she was just actually sleepy. I don't know. Yeah, I feel pretty sleepy right now, and I'm pretty sure nobody's operated on my brain. Mm, yeah, I'm not seeing any scars. I think you're probably good. Although that Dr. Gorilla body, he's a pretty handy stitcher. Yeah, that's true. Tough to tell. Tough to tell. Did you find yourself in any suburban Connecticut towns uh, surrounded by people with abnormal heads? Gosh, not since the 80s, so... Yeah, I think you're probably fine. Okay. And I mean, come on, it was the 80s. I think we all did that. (laughs) As a very precocious 12-year-old. So we saw that one of the things that Kyle bought with his money was the services of the lawyer Matt Murdock. I think it's weird that they go out of their way to make Matt Murdock say, well, it didn't come cheap. You had to donate a lot to this charity to hire me as a lawyer. Why wouldn't he just hire him as a lawyer? And then if he wanted to, he could give that money to charity. I mean, you can hire lawyers. Mm -hmm. And lawyers generally work for money. Mm -hmm. Seemed like an unnecessary Yeah, I don't remember what the deal with Daredevil's law firm was like if he was supposed to be like a non-profit like they were helping people or something i don't think he was a public defender no i think they just had a law firm Mm. and generally you have to pay lawyers money i think Mm -hmm. but maybe it was like a tax dodge i don't know sneaky yeah well the other weird thing about matt murdoch is he is wearing glasses not sunglasses and i was like is that a coloring error The weird thing about that is that the colorist of this issue is Klaus Janssen, who's the inker, who has previously, and amongst his most famous work, is working on Daredevil comic books. His main run is still upcoming from this 1976 issue, because he worked on it with Frank Miller a lot, but he had previously done a few issues of Daredevil. He knows that Daredevil wears sunglasses. It seemed like an odd sort of mistake to be made. Agreed. I wonder if maybe somebody just switched him out on Daredevil, like as a prank. Well, hmm. maybe Doctor Strange just been doing a lot of oh, weird little pranks. I bet he has. Oh, man. Been a real Kyle lately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, very juvenile. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if the other defenders generally use that as an insult. They just call it. <laughs> yeah, nice work, Kyle. Don't be such a Kyle. And sometimes they slip up and say it to Kyle. And he's just like, hey. Really? Yeah. Really Kyle this one up. Oh, I've made a real Kyle of things. Oh, now I'm doing it. What did you think of the Committee for Free Emigration? Um, well, they seem like jerks. Yeah, it's a weird thing that they're doing. Like, normally when you would have a situation like this, where there is an organization in a comic book from this era that is violently opposed to communists, specifically... Russian communists and their bad guys, they would be xenophobic mm-hmm. and be kind of like the sons of the serpent or opposed to immigrants. But this is a pro emigration organization that I think it's pretty strongly implied is a Jewish organization mm-hmm. that wants to have their relatives be able to escape from behind the Iron Curtain where. Jewish people were being pretty horribly mistreated. Mm -hmm. It's weird to have them be the bad guys. Yeah, it is. And it seems like the sort of thing that I would like some more elaboration on if you're going to make them that. They set up this kind of mystery as to who the assassin is. And he's called the assassin on the cover, and presumably in the title of the book, because the issue's title is Love, Anarchy, and, oh yes, the assassin. He's never called the assassin in the book. That's not his code name or anything. The Red Guardian only describes him as a man with no face and no name. Mm -hmm. And on the cover of the book, he looks so much like this other Marvel supervillain called the Hatemonger, who is like a Klansman type character, but kind of color swapped. He looks pretty much just like that. They make the hood on the cover of the book pointy. It's not in the interiors. But I thought that that probably was the Hatemonger. Interesting thing about the Hatemonger, he's actually Adolf Hitler. Oh. Yeah. And so that was kind of what I was expecting out of this book. But instead, we're introduced to this character who, as the Red Guardian said, has no name and no face in that you never see his face. And he has robot arms. And that's all we learn about him. And she defeats him and then just leaves him for the police to pick up. In The Defenders, we never again hear from the assassin 
or the Committee for Free Emigration, or the woman, what was her name? Oh, the grandma with the 9mm? Yeah, who has like a pretty good turn of phrase. Red Guardian's like, ah, yeah, I just carried this dude up the stairs. I'm a little tired from it. And she says, really? You certainly are a remarkable little lady, aren't you? Well, surprise, I'm a remarkable little lady, too. And then she pulls out a gun. And that's where she says, with a lot of remarkable little relatives who are trapped in your country because of its immigration policy. 4,000 years and we're still in bondage. And that's where I was getting that Mm -hmm. this is about her Jewish relatives, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. And yeah, her name is... Mrs. Rosenzweig. So I don't think it's unfair to assume that she is supposed to be Jewish. It seems weird to set them up as the bad guys and not have any elaboration on that going forward. Mm -hmm. It's just a weird move that I wish we got a little bit more clarification. If you're going to make a group of oppressed people that are militant be your bad guys... I kind of want some more nuance out of the situation or some more explanation of what's going on with this. Which may or may not be forthcoming. I don't think it is. I know this is the only appearance of the character who they call him the assassin on the cover. This is his only appearance, and I don't think we see the committee for free emigration again. Mm. So it's kind of disappointing and just confusing. It seemed like an unnecessary thing to introduce. And why does he have those robot hands? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's in the Marvel Universe. We don't have that many Russian characters. And so we've got Colossus, who has, like, metal hands, at least some of the time. And this guy, is that a stereotype I wasn't aware of? That Russians are made out of metal? Or their hands are? I mean, Drago says he's like a piece of iron, I can't hit him. Oh, but if he had iron hands, he could hit him. Yeah, Yeah, that's Rocky. Yeah, on Um, account of all the crunchers and... Right. And stuff. Right. And running in the snow. Yeah. Yeah. That'll give you a belly of iron. Yep. I just, maybe it's a Russian stereotype I'm not familiar with. Goddamn Russians. Oh, I got metal hands. Tired of these metal handed Ruskies. Steel handed Reds. (laughs) Yep. Better dead than steel hand dead. Huh? Oh, haha. I see what you did there. Yeah. It wasn't good. No. No. It rhymed dead with dead. Yeah. It's not good. No. I was intrigued by the, by the title. Yeah, I kind of was too. As I mentioned, it is Love, Anarchy, and oh yes, The Assassin. What did you make of that? I did Google it a little bit, mm-hmm. and the closest that I could find is there was a biography of uh, Emma Goldman, who was uh, an anarchist from mm-hmm. the States, and it was called Love and Anarchy was the name of her biography but that came out i think in the 80s yeah later, so that didn't really match up so i was thinking like yeah was it the name of a play or something that was going on or i'm honestly not sure i know there was in the 70s there was an italian movie called love and anarchy oh, yeah. um that was i saw that yeah it's about an anarchist uh prostitute trying to assassinate Mussolini. love, love in the time of anarchy no, it's just called Love and Anarchy. Was it? Yeah, you're thinking of Love in the Time of Cholera. I always get Marquez and... <laughs> I always get Cholera and Anarchy mixed up. You're always scrawling those uh, cholera signs on your skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just a copyright symbol. <laughs> oh, I right. You don't want anybody to steal your skateboard yeah. trick ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like to see with a little circle that's not the color <laughs> it might be maybe that's where they got it from ah. so there is one more thing to discuss before we get into the minutiae and that is we had some oh <laughs> we had some picket signs on this issue I know we traditionally just do that for the new Teen Titans but I don't think they've come up in a Defenders book before it's been a while yeah, we had some picket signs. Mm-hmm. Those ladies did not want a snuff film shown. Fair enough. Yeah, good for them. Mm-hmm. I don't have too much else to say about it other than nice to see some picket signs. Let's take a look at what they said. Snuff waste. Death ain't funny. Women are not waste. Yeah, death ain't funny is a weird one to do. I don't think this film was being marketed as a comedy. No, but I also think that a lot of the those kind of splatter films of the, the 70s did have a, a little bit of a, a goofiness to them or a campiness that maybe people associated with maybe. humor. But fair enough. Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, you ready to get into the minutiae? Let's. Rick, would you mind 
singing us a song. A song about minutia and also about Cory eating farts. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. What was your favorite sound effect? I felt like this issue was a little light on the sound effects. My favorite one is when Hulk accidentally smashes up the whole theater. I don't think it's an accident. I mean, he crumples it up with his hands. No, he smashes it on purpose, but afterwards he's like, why did I do that? So I guess that's not accidental. It's just yeah. confused. But I agree. It's a good noise. Yep. And uh, the way that it's drawn is very cool as well, because his body smashing foot first into the uh, sidewalk interrupts the two syllables that make up the smashing noises, uh, which is... Crawroom. I thought it was just crew-oom. What did I say? Crawroom. Yeah, it's uh, K-R-O-O-O-M. Yep, with the Hulk in the middle. Yeah, so maybe the Hulk was contorting his body like a like the letter R. Yeah, no, I just read my notes wrong. It was. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Croom. I thought maybe he was doing like a YMCA pose. I don't think so. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. What about you? What sounds did you like? I liked that one a lot. I also really enjoyed a subtler moment where we saw that the Committee for Free Emigration tied a note chastising the defenders for associating with the Red Guardian and threw it through the window. Mm -hmm. They wrapped the note around a rock. And after reading the note, Tanya goes off to confront the people who threw the rock. She tells everybody to stay put. Val stands there holding the rock, crushes the rock in one hand. Mm -hmm. And it just says crunch. In kind of small letters, but it's like she's it. The fact that it's like smaller sound effects letters, just that she is kind of unthinkingly because she is frustrated, crumpling up a rock as though it was a piece of paper, mm-hmm. just makes the noise crunch. I really enjoyed that. She's bad assed. She really is. Nice job, Val. Nice job. Crunch. Crunch indeed. Corey, in this issue, what was your pie not made out of steel what metaphor did you enjoy like you would enjoy a pie were that pie not made out of steel boy uh page one comes on pretty strong with a couple good ones it really does i i had the same thought why don't you take the first one i'll take the second all right the courtroom walls seem to bow outward to make room for the smiles yeah that's just a nice image right yeah so many smiles pushing the walls of the court out. I, and and it's it's drawn really nicely, too, because everybody looks all Everybody looks all super happy. happy when they're hanging out there, yeah. Except that judge who looks all judgy. Yeah. He, well, he's delivering some animadversions. Yeah, you can't do that with a smile. Indeed, the sudden infusion of sunlight lollipops and roses is marred only by the sullen scowl of Jack Norris, Val's husband of sorts. And he doesn't count. Yep, and I think that little bit at the end made that my favorite pie not made out of steel. Yeah, me too. Full agreement. Jack Norris doesn't count. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you feel are worthy of note? Well, I suppose we can't not acknowledge Val's new duds. That is true. She has a new outfit. What do you think of it? I am confused of the material. Is it supposed to be metal? I think so, or just, like, gold lame, maybe. She has a gold, like, one-piece bathing suit with one sleeve, mm-hmm. basically. And then gold thigh-high boots. Mm-hmm. It's fine. I understand the problems with her old outfit. The shell casings for boobs, not necessarily a great look. Mm-hmm. This new outfit doesn't really do that much for me. It looks way more 80s than it does Norse. Yeah, I think 70s. Like, it's it's a little bit disco-y, maybe. Mm. It's just kind of there's not that much to it. It's got a it's got a nice belt, I guess. It's fine. I think if Clea is going to give her a hand cell, it should be pointier. Like maybe give her one of those collars, like uh, like she stuck her head through a flying V guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clea's got that look down, but maybe she feels proprietary about it. Yeah, honestly, I wish that Val was fighting crime in her courtroom clothes, cause those shits are rad. Yes, that is a very seventiesy. 70s outfit. Yeah, it's great. She's wearing lime green slacks and like what looks like a tweed short trench coat I imagine, or a long blazer. I imagine the pattern of that to be like, do you remember that brown couch that was yeah. in the basement? Yeah. 
But it's cool looking, and then she's got a lime green ascot that she's wearing with it. Mm-hmm. It's a great look. I think once she gets Dragon Fang back, she should just be like, yeah, why don't I just fight crime wearing this? Fucking put a giant billowing lime green cape behind it if you want. If you have to. Yeah, you can attach it to the ascot. Or just stay business casual and fight crime. Yeah. It's a real Mr. Furley kind of look, but she pulls it off a lot better than he would. <laughs> oh, that's a good He'd point. have a different jacket, I think. Probably. But, like, the, the lime green pants and lime green ascot, <laughs> she should really be admonishing Jack Tripper. I think so. Yeah. Was there any other fashion you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I liked uh, Jack Norris's green trench coat and purple big-collared shirt. I think it's pink, actually. Pink big-collared shirt. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It was uh, It was an interesting look. How do you pronounce the word M-A-U-V-E? Mauve? Yeah, that's how I say it, too. Yeah. Okay. Do you know somebody who says it mauve? Uh, I feel like I might have heard that. Somebody was trying to... I can't even remember the conversation, but yeah, they said I was saying it wrong. And I was like, how else do you say it? Did you smash? No. Hmm. Apparently, you could just smash and then just be like, wonder what that was about. Take a page out of the Hulk's book, Corey. Yeah, good point. Thank you. But yeah, I think you were saying mauve. Mauve. I think his shirt's kind it of seems like it, cause it sounds Because it looks like it rhymes with suave. Exactly. Yeah. You don't say suave. No. Unless you're talking about a soothing balm. And you're not. Generally. Almost never. <laughs> Although if you did, it could be pretty suave. What was your favorite panel? Oh, uh, Goofy Strange, man. Yeah. I was torn because I did think it was funny when he made the senator's pants fall down. So the panel with the senator looking embarrassed and wearing his boxer shorts was good. But Steve's anti-little stinker mm-hmm. look on his face is just fucking priceless. I I loved that. It made me very happy. Very funny. Very cute. What is the reason, do you suppose, that whenever I feel like when embarrassing boxer shirt moments happen in comic books they either have polka dots or like hearts on them i guess that's that's the only two styles they had i think it's mostly just to maybe drive home that they are definitely wearing boxer shorts make it less risque and remove any potential sexiness from them that's all i can think of i think it probably is like that would be the sort of thing that like clowns would do if they had their pants fall down because it would like emphasize the fact that they were polka dots that they were yeah that they were that they were underpants basically mm-hmm. and like distinct from their regular pants and but also definitely not revealing mm-hmm. and i think it kind of just became an outgrowth of that mm-hmm. like that was just kind of the trope that's my guess it's a good guess i guess thanks i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that look on steve's face priceless also really the the artwork in the opening panel it's great. It's that opening splash where everybody is just looking so happy and Red Guardian is making like little finger guns at Nighthawk. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you paid all the money. Good job. Best defender, worst offender. Who you got? For best, I think that uh, that Red Guardian actually kicked a lot of butt. She really did. And was she wasn't a jerk to Power Man. No. Like she she hasn't sometimes. been for the past couple issues. It's... Uh, She's really, I think, earned a grudging respect for him. We did have a pretty good little bit of a debate where she, she did kind of knock him down a peg. Yeah, I still so think he had a better point. I, and I think also he was just like, you know what, I'm done. Yeah, because it's like, and that made Luke shut up all the way back to Steve's house. Yeah, or he was just like, yeah, whatever, okay. Because yes, she says that, well, it seems like your generosity is the thing that makes the Defenders work. Because Kyle's just buying their way out of every problem. And Luke Cage says, that just goes to show that greed is what makes the world go around. She's like, well, maybe. But that explains why people take his money, not why he gives it. And they treat that like that's just a like, damn, shut you up, Luke Cage. But really, I think it's just like, yeah, whatever. I'm or done. Maybe he had something really good to come back with, but he didn't want to hurt Birdman's feeling, or Bird knows Bird his, knows his feelings. feelings. Yeah. I don't think that's a high priority on anybody's list. No, that's true. <laughs> Way to Kyle it up, Kyle. Maybe Luke feels that he did lose the debate, and what he started to say was, oh, I really pulled a Kyle there. Yeah. And I was like, ooh. That's probably why he doesn't say anything. Yeah, well, maybe he wants $300,000. Might need to renegotiate. Speaking of which, worst offender, I had Jack Norris. I 
guess I can't really pick Norris again because I picked him last time, I but, know, I, but I did. I I did. Yeah, I have Jack Norris, and then my runner-up though was Steve Strange. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I had kind of the same thing, uh, for a couple of reasons. For partly for wanting to consult with Jack Norris yeah. about something. What, you, what is <laughs> on your mind, Steve? And yeah, also for the we talked about it before. Uh, and it's the same reason he was my backup last issue. The the idea that he can fix what's wrong with his mind by meditating about his mind. Just the whole idea that, like, uh, by pulling on my shoelaces hard enough, I can levitate. That's not how that works. Mm. Come on, man. Mm. I do like that he decided to do it outside this time. But also the fact that his motivating factor is being vainglorious rather than benevolent towards mankind and needing to be there to protect them. And he's like, I don't want to look silly. Vainglorious dolt. <laughs> yeah. He's a real beast boy. He's not that bad. No. But yeah, did you have other reasons for choosing him as well? No, those those were the re- the main ones, but also just, and we touched on this earlier, the kind of self-absorbed reasoning or nature b- behind him wanting to meditate and solve his magic problems. Yeah, I agree. And also he does have another moment where at the end he's like, we should go and... Go to our headquarters in Queens, which I guess is the writing academy that Nighthawk bought them. No, oh, is yeah. that there? Was that in Queens? With the adamantium chairs. Yeah, I don't know what other facility they have. That's my guess. I had thought that was on Long Island. Weird place to hide a winged horse ranch. Yeah, seems seems odd. Maybe they just want to be closer to a young Run DMC. Probably it. Yeah, they want to go towards Hollis. Christmas time. It's Halloween time. How come Run DMC never did a Halloween rap? Oh, no. It's a missed opportunity. Dang. Man. The fact that his reasoning for wanting to go there is, oh, with people poking around, I don't want any burglars getting near my mystical doodads. I mean, yes, we have seen that before they, you know, they touched a magic diamond, they go to a different dimension, and that it's a whole to-do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really seemed more like he was just worried about his stuff. But also, doesn't he have mystical defenses up about his place so that it would be a safer place to be? It just seemed weird, and, like, I didn't really understand his reasoning behind that. Yeah, one would think, and even if not mystical defenses, like, he's pretty well off. He could afford an alarm. Yeah. Or, you know, some security, or, a night watchman. Yeah, or just Wong. Mm-hmm. Does he not trust Wong? Wong does a great job. Bad job, Steve. And I mean, that's why you're the runner-up. Yes. Not trusting Wong. Yes. You're nearly as bad as Jack Norris. With him being, like, we said last issue he was back on his bullshit with the where's my wife business. It is just ramped up to 11 here. Just not trusting Val, not listening to Val. Getting paid $300,000 to go away. Damn. Yeah. We all know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Corey. I'm glad you asked. I think that in this issue, my takeaway was, and and this has come up with the Hulk's rules again, but it's really this kind of a trust your gut thing. Mm. And more specifically, if you see a picket sign and it looks like a semaphore, don't make any sudden decisions because you're probably going to regret them. Because that was the sort of beginning of the tell where he's he's leaping over the theater. He sees the signs. They look like semaphores. And then he just smashes the shit out of everything and then was like, whoa, I didn't mean to do that. So does he just hate naval communication? All I'm saying is if you see picket signs <laughs> and they look like semaphores, those little flag things. Yeah, like no, Monty that's Python. what I'm saying. Like, that's how they communicate a, like, sea, right? Yeah. Does the Hulk just hate the Navy? Does he hate the Beatles? I... Wasn't that what they did on Help? Wasn't that the semaphore thing? I don't know why. Maybe it was Monty Python. Maybe he's just like, everybody thinks this is funny and I don't get it. Oh. They had a semaphore translation thing at one point. Yeah, but that was uh, funny. I think the Hulk would get that. You think so? Yeah. Well, I don't know, man. All I know is if you see a picket sign and it looks like a semaphore, just take a minute, take a deep breath, and don't smash anything. So part of that rule, though, would be then if you do take the time and see that it is semaphore, go ahead and smash. Well, sure, but just don't do <laughs> okay. it quickly. Okay. Don't make a rash choice. Fair enough. Trust your gut. Gotcha. Like the whole. Wait. I mean, he trusted his gut, and that's why he smashed. How is that trusting your gut? I gotta rethink this one a little <laughs> bit. If you see a picket sign, and it looks like a semaphore, you probably should wait a second before you smash something. Okay. 
That's the Hulk's rules. <laughs> That's a great rule. <laughs> Thank you. The other rule that the Hulk was able to take away from this issue, strangely enough, he learned a lesson from Jack Norris. Hmm. And that lesson is be aware of yourself and what your abilities are and know your worth. Jack Norris is a real piece of shit, and he knew that. He knew that he was super fucking annoying and that everybody hated him. He recognized that he had a unique ability to have people want him to go away very, very badly. And that he could charge $300,000 for that ability. It's a good... And he made good on it. He did a little bit of mental calculation. was like, how annoying am I? How badly does everybody want me to go away? Hmm. Hmm. $300,000. If he had said $400,000, there's a chance that Kyle would have just been like, yeah, stick around. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want that. Hold the bluff. Yeah. Like, I want you to leave, but uh, I don't want you to leave that badly. I only want you to leave $300,000 worth. So, assess your own abilities and know your worth. And that's the Hulk's rules. So you can get Mint or Personal Capital or one of these other free apps. Put in your information. Oh yeah, Venmo. I don't think that tells you your net worth. Oh no, I was saying people could Venmo you $300,000. Oh yeah, well the first is you figure out what you're worth. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, then you get Cash App or Venmo or one of those. Sure. Because, like, right away, bing, ding, ding, shows up, and you're like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> See ya. I'm going to go buy a robot suit. I'm going to go join the global head party. Corey, it's time for us to write some wongs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was Wong up to in the year of our Lord 1976 and the month of our Lord October? Yeah, so... We've talked about this a lot, that Wong is a fan of music, among many other things. Mm -hmm. And in uh, October of 1976, he found himself kind of wrestling with what happens, how, do you, how does one balance commercial success with creative integrity? Mm. And the reason that he was having this struggle is because in reading some of the music journals that he was a, a fan of, he learned and was initially happy that the uh, Sex Pistols had just signed to EMI Records. Yeah. And was like, oh, this is great. They're going to get wider exposure. I think, I feel like this is, this is good energetic music, and I, I think it'll help, you know, act as a kind of social safety valve for, for what's going on in the world. And mm -hmm. um, But also, like, are they going to sell out now that now that they've got this big record contract? And yeah, I, don't they, know. I mean, they had always kind of... So, that was... about that filthy lucre? Yeah, 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 so... That was, a, that was what was on Wong's mind. Hmm. And that's all I've got, because this was a shit month and a shit year for news. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's fine. Yeah, that, that, I think that was, that was something that Wong was thinking about. Another thing that Wong had going on was he just wanted to help out with the Defenders a little bit more than he was. So, mm. well, the Defenders were off dealing with problems that they could punch in the face or lift up as mm -hmm. Jack Norris put it. Mm -hmm. Wong was trying to Wong was trying to do a little more research into things and figure out a way that he could be of service. So he read about Nebulon's cult that he was starting and was like, I, I want to learn more about like self-help stuff. So there was a book that was about self-help that that he found and he's just like, maybe this will get me some more insight about why people are joining this uh, celestial mind control group and what they're hoping to get out of it. There is a book that was number two on the bestseller list in October called Your Erroneous Zones oh. by Wayne Dyer. And it was about like negative thinking and how you need to let go of that. And it's a, it's a positive thinking pep talk type book. Mm -hmm. Long was reading and he wasn't getting all that much information out of it. But Doctor Strange came home and saw that he was reading that and said, Erogenous Zones? Wong, put that stupid book away immediately. Clea tried to get me to read a book like that once. I told her, if there were erogenous zones, I would know about it. I'm a doctor. Mm. And he threw the book in the trash. And Wong was like, that's not what... You know what? Never... Sure. Fine. And he picked up another book that was also on the best uh, seller list that month. It was Scoundrel Time 
by Lillian Hellman. It's about her testifying in front of the uh, House American on Activities Committee and her refusal to turn state witness for them and uh, why she got blackballed as a result of it. It's a very good read. I would totally recommend it. And Wong really enjoyed that. And that was how he was writing Wongs. Good job, Wong. Yeah. Write those Wongs. Great job. Nice. A great job to you for listening to us, listener. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We will be back next week with a very exciting Tales of the Teen Titans issue. I think we see the debut of Robin's new persona. Ooh. Very exciting. Third in the Judas contract? Yes. Should be a big deal time. Woo. That's a thing. Big deal time. Big deal time. And then we'll be back in two weeks with the Defenders King Size Annual. Woof. Oh boy. Where we find out how many Manhattans is maybe the right amount of Manhattans <laughs> to get through a giant comic. Oh, good deal. Yeah, we haven't done a King Size Annual before. We've done the Giant Size Specials. How many Manhattans does it take to get to the bottom of a Gerber plot? <laughs> Three is still a lot. But maybe the minimum. It's <laughs> <laughs> only one way to find out. Indeed there is. So we hope you'll join us for that. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook and Instagram and in your hearts and minds. Look for us there, but don't look too hard. Who knows what you will find. If you would like to donate to us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material, including the monthly podcast that I host with Lisa about Howard the Duck. That's called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. A title that definitely has diminishing returns. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real treat. And I wish you sunlight, lollipops, and roses. Unless you're Jack Norris. Where's my wife? He doesn't count. <laughs>